Well, good morning. Welcome to our next week of being scattered together. And uh, as restrictions have been set a little bit longer, it looks like we're going to be doing this for a little bit longer. But thank you for gathering together with us this way. I pray this morning is a blessing to you and an encouragement, as has been said. And uh, as you can see here, uh, I do want to invite you um, there in your home or wherever it is you're watching this right now. We are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of this service at the end of this message. So if you'd like to prepare, get a small glass of juice or wine or whatever you'd like to use and some bread uh, to celebrate there on your own or whatever, whoever's we gathered with you, um, you can prepare that now ahead of time or do that afterwards. But I um, want to invite you, if you know Jesus as your Savior, to celebrate the Lord's Supper here this, uh, this morning. So we're going to come to this time in the service. We'll look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, if you would turn to Matthew's Gospel, we're continuing in our series, Kingdom Come, Matthew's Gospel, now continuing through chapter 3 to look at the ministry of John the Baptist here as he's down there baptizing in the Jordan. And we come to verse 13 now, Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, Matthew writes this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John. To be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll jump into this passage together. Spirit of God, we come before you this morning uh, asking you to come and descend into our presence. Would you fill us right now, uh, um, open up our hearts and our minds our ears, to receive what it is you want us to learn today from this word which you've inspired to be written, and I just pray that you would accomplish the work which you have set out to accomplish in sending this out. Uh, we believe you'll do that. We're trusting you to do that. Accomplish that by your strength, not by any ability of mine. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Well, it was June 2nd. 1953, uh, over a year after ascending to the throne following the death of her father, King George VI, when Queen Elizabeth II was crowned in a coronation ceremony at Westminster Abbey in London, the first ever televised coronation ceremony, and, and a British monarch to be televised, that, that publicly inaugurated her rule as monarch over the United Kingdom. Uh, it was a glorious celebration that day for the world to see, which you could still view here on, on YouTube, or if you're fans of The Crown, you would have seen reenacted there in season one. But there are two things about Elizabeth's coronation that I think have particular relevance to this opening scene in Jesus' ministry that we have here in our passage today, which I think are worth considering, and which I think help us better understand what's going on in this often confusing passage. Uh, the first thing about her coronation is the reason why her coronation was televised. Um, for although 
That sounds weird for us to say because today virtually everything is broadcast to the world for everybody to see. Um, outside of her father's coronation, which was only broadcast by radio, no other coronation of any British royal had been witnessed by anyone in any way other than by other royalty or the upper class before. No one had ever witnessed this before outside of those people. However, at the encouragement of her husband, Prince Philip, the queen chose to have her coronation televised to the world in order to bring uh, humanity to her reign, as well as to reveal herself as a, king, as a queen for all the people, regardless of their social class. So that was the reason behind why her coronation was tele televised. The second thing to think about her coronation was what her coronation meant, what it meant. And sometimes I think we get this confused because we operate, at least many of us, in a political system where uh, different leaders are, are they, they, they rule for a prescribed period of time. They have set terms and then they step down and someone else steps in, um, as evidenced by her entering into, I believe now, her 68th year uh, of reign as the queen. I think we could just see, yeah, the British monarchy works in a different way. Uh, where a king or a queen serve until their death or until they abdicate the throne. But the point is, and I think this is where we often get confused, coronation, that, that, that beautiful big ceremony, coronation was not the thing that made Elizabeth II the queen. The coronation isn't what made her the queen. The death of her father, the king, and her being next in line to, to rule, that's the thing that made her the queen. And she'd been ruling as the queen for over a year now since her father's death. All that the coronation ceremony did was to publicly validate, verify, and establish what was already true of her. And it's those two things in particular I want to consider again as we look at this opening scene in Jesus' public ministry that if you look at verse 14, was as confusing to John the Baptist as it is for many of us today when we try to understand why it is that a sinless Jesus would seek a baptism of repentance. I want to look at those two things because what John came to eventually understand what I believe we're going to come to understand today as well as we dig into this passage is that what I believe go, is going on here in Jesus' baptism is his coronation. I think that's what we're witnessing here. That is his coronation. That is his public validation, verification, establishment of what was already true about him, that he was the king of kings, as he now embarks on his mission that he'd come to carry out. I think that's what we're witnessing here which is something that's incredibly important for us to understand. Why? Well, because when we understand the baptism of Jesus properly, we see, first of all, the, the, the validation from heaven itself of who Jesus is. You've got heaven itself verifying, this is my promised, come, my promised king, this is my son. But we also have the identification of the king of kings with all of his people, and in an infinitely more profound way than a television broadcast. And so as we finish up chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel today, the way I want to frame our look at this often confusing scene of Jesus' baptism for us is by looking at Jesus, our substitute, and then Jesus, our king. Just those two things. Jesus, our substitute, that's the identification part, and then Jesus, our king, that's the divine validation part. So if you close your Bibles, your Bible app, let's get into this. Uh, follow along with me if you want to open that up again. 
Follow along with me, Matthew 3, verse 13, where we'll begin. As Jesus here begins day one of the work that he'd come to do, as he says there, to fulfill all righteousness. Okay, so let's look first of all at Jesus, our substitute. Jesus, our substitute. Now, maybe it's uh, on a vacation on the other side of the world. Maybe it's while attending an AA meeting. Maybe it's while seeing a celebrity standing in line with you at your local bubble tea place. But whatever it is, I think all of us have had an experience before in our lives, some kind of experience, where we meet someone in a place that you're totally not expecting to see them. They just show up and you just say, wait, what? You, how are you? And, and you have that moment of just like, what, you, what, well, if you have had that experience, you'll understand. I think this is exactly what I think is going on for John the Baptist here in our passage as he's continuing in his ministry down at the Jordan River, which we began learning about last week here. He's baptizing people, as it says in verse 11 there, with his water for repentance, when suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, steps Jesus from the crowd. Now, remember, John is Jesus' older cousin. And as D.A. Carson notes, had almost certainly been told about Jesus. Uh, um, he'd likely maybe even spent time, some of their growing up years, with Jesus. And he would have undoubtedly been told of the experience that his mother had when she met Mary years ago when she came to visit her. And she had Jesus in her womb. And John the Baptist, we were told, leapt in her womb. We know that because mothers love to tell Baby stories again and again. You don't remember this, but when you were a baby, do you know what you did? And would tell this story. John was probably sick of hearing it actually by now. It's like, Mom, we know. Yes, I left in the womb. It was, it was amazing. But so, so John knows who Jesus is, which is why, although Matthew omits this detail, in, in John the Apostle's gospel, uh, we're told that when Jesus steps out from the crowd, John the Baptist looks up at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, so, so John has some concept, an idea of who Jesus is, but already there's probably a little bit of this, hey, like what, what are you doing here kind of moment as Jesus steps out going on for John. But, man, when Jesus walks out into the water where John is baptizing people and tells John that he wants him to baptize him, I mean, that sense is likely multiplied by a thousand times because as we see again in verse 11 after talking about his baptism with water for repentance John goes on to say but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire okay so so much greater baptism that he's offering so for Jesus to come out to John now and say that he wants to be baptized by him it's just, it's just incomprehensible to John. It must just have been like, oh, okay, yeah, that's, that's good, Jesus, good one. And Jesus is like, no, no, I really want you to baptize me. And, and John just like can't fathom what's going on. This would be like you two coming to some nobody band, practicing in their garage when they're getting ready to play at a high school dance and asking if they can open for them uh, before they, they play their set. I mean, don't want to play a couple of songs before you do your sets. Like, it would just be like, why would you open for me? Um, it's not going to work, which is why, of course, as we see in verse 14, John wants to prevent Jesus from going ahead with this. He's like, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? But then look at verse 15. Look at Jesus' response. He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us 
to fulfill all righteousness. Okay, so notice a couple things. First of all, Jesus doesn't say that John is wrong. He doesn't say his point is invalid. He simply tells him, let it be so now. And the sense behind that word now is like, let it be so for now or or in this moment. Let, let, Let this happen because in so doing, Jesus says, John, you will join me in helping to complete the work that I've come to do to fulfill all righteousness. Let it be so now. Now, man, we could spend our entire time on that sentence alone, how Jesus has come to fulfill all righteousness. But because I want us to cover the the whole baptism section here, I just want to highlight a few quick points just to make sure we're on the same page and understand. First of all, righteousness, that's a term which means uh, it's a right standing. It's It's a restored relationship with a holy God brought about by obedience to the commands of God. Something which, if you've been a Christian for even more than five minutes, you already know that since Adam, we're we're incapable of doing perfectly. We can't obey God's commands perfectly enough to be righteous before him. We we strive to be obedient to him, but we can't do it enough to be perfect in his sight. Secondly, notice Matthew, once again, he brings up that idea of fulfillment. To fulfill all righteousness, Jesus says. Which again, that idea of fulfillment means to fill something up to completion, to bring it to completion. And lastly, notice here that nowhere does Jesus say that this baptism alone will fulfill all righteousness. He simply states that this is a necessary part of fulfilling it. This must be done in order to fulfill all righteousness. And maybe, I don't know, maybe you hear all that and you're still kind of confused. Like, yeah, okay, I hear that, but I don't know how that fits or or, or how that actually is a response to John's objection. Uh, How does that work? Well, listen Listen to how Tim Keller restates John's objection to Jesus' request to be baptized, and I think, I think you'll understand a bit more how these pieces all fit together, because think about it. What's, what's the force behind John's objection? John is, is giving a, a baptism where, where, for everybody else. Everyone else that he's baptizing has a need of. Everyone has a need of this baptism of repentance, including himself, but he knows that Jesus, who is sinless, does not. He doesn't need a baptism for repentance. And so, as Keller notes, the ultimate sense of John's objection is this. Jesus, what are you doing in my place and I doing in yours? Why are you down there submitting to the waters of God's judgment and repentance? Why am I in your place and you're in mine? Are you beginning to see it now? All throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, he states that his sole purpose for his coming was to seek and to save that which was lost, to, to, to give his life as a ransom for many. But in order to do that, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 2, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, equal in every way with God, must first humble himself, must take on human flesh, and must take on the form of a servant, must identify holy with those that he's come to seek and save. That's why the author of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 2, since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. As R.C. Sproul notes, Jesus had no need of repentance or cleansing himself. Therefore, his baptism proclaimed that he had come to take the sinner's place under God's judgment. That is, 
to be our substitute. Or as the reformer Martin Luther once said it so beautifully, Jesus is baptized not because he shares our need, but in order to share it. Understanding who Jesus truly is, if we do, if we know who Jesus truly is, understanding that, we're as surprised as John to see Jesus standing in a river seeking a baptism for repentance. We're just like, what's going on here? And yet, as Frederick Dale Bruner so powerfully states it, it is well known that Jesus ends his ministry on a cross between two thieves. It deserves to be as well known that he begins his ministry in a river among sinners. He goes on, from his baptism to his execution, Jesus stays low. He stays at our level, identifying with us at every point, becoming as completely one with us in our humanity, with the exception of our sin, as in the church's teaching, he is believed to be completely one with God in eternity. In, in her coronation, Queen Elizabeth II sought to bring greater humanity to her role by by. by broadcasting her coronation ceremony to the world. That's how she sought to bring greater humanity to her royal rule in his coronation ceremony, which I think we're viewing here. Jesus goes a million times further by so identifying with the people that he came to seek and to save that he becomes humanity itself. Experiencing life and all its struggles and temptations exactly as we do, all so that he can accomplish for us what none of us could ever hope to accomplish ourselves, namely to, to live a life perfectly obedient to God's commands and then suffer under God's wrath for all the ways we've lived and continue to live in rebellion to them. Substituting his obedient life for ours, willingly substituting himself in your place and in mine and placing us in his Thus completing, thus filling up all righteousness on our behalf. A substitution that the Apostle Paul summarizes so simply and powerfully, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what Jesus is doing, first of all, in his baptism here in the Jordan River, identifying with the very people that he came to seek and to save and completing every every act of obedience on our behalf as though he were guilty for sin so that he might truly present himself as that spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world that, that John had referred to him as. Now, no, I'm not suggesting now that, that John understood Going ahead here, he understood everything about Jesus' response to his objection. I'm not. And yet, as the last part of verse 15 reveals, I think he understood at least enough of Jesus' response to submit to his request, and he baptizes him. And as Jesus comes up out of the water after being baptized, this is where I believe we see Jesus' coronation now completed. So we've looked at Jesus, our substitute. Now let's look lastly at Jesus, our king. Jesus our king. So, again, John submits to Jesus' request for baptism, and then in verse 16 and 17, we read this. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So, you've got 
three main things going on there as I see in this passage. You've got the heavens opening, Spirit of God descending on Jesus, and then the Father speaking from heaven. I, I want to say a little bit about each one of those things individually, but it's important to know that eventually we're going to need to collectively see all those things together as one thing, otherwise you, you miss the, the meaning of what's actually going on here. So first of all, when Matthew speaks about the heavens being opened, that, that's language that's actually used throughout the Bible, used to signal a, a direct revelation from heaven. That's either about to happen or that's happening. So you see that places like Isaiah 64, Ezekiel 1, uh, Acts chapter 7. You might remember Stephen's being stoned and he says, I see the heavens opened. Or, or John in Revelation, uh, it talks about a door opened in heaven and he's brought in to see all these revelations of what heaven wants to reveal. But as it relates to that occurrence, the heavens opening and also the last thing, the Father speaking, what was incredibly important about those two things at this point in history in particular is that that was something that God had not done now for over 400 years. This is the first time in 400 years that God has spoken to his people for the people of Israel had once again, they had rebelled against God, they'd broken his covenant, and as a result, the heavens had functionally, essentially been closed. No word from God, either directly or through one of his prophets, had been spoken since Malachi, which was uh, the last book we have, last prophet we have in the, the Old Testament there. But now, here we got John the Baptist. First of all, he is God's messenger. He is the one that Isaiah and Malachi both speak of. This voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for God's ultimate revelation of himself, Jesus. And then, in the baptism of Jesus, after 400 years of silence, the heavens open and once again, God speaks. But before he speaks... If you look at the second half of verse 16, something happens first. We're told that as Jesus comes up from the water, look what happens. The Spirit of God descends like a dove and comes to rest on him. I don't want to get caught in the weeds of like, oh, was that a little, like did a bird come and land on Jesus or something? Probably not. Uh, this is likely some physical manifestation or a vision of some kind of, of seeing the Spirit's presence coming to rest on Jesus. But, but we, we see this happen as Jesus comes up, and I think we need to pause here for just a second and kind of pull this from the other three and unpack it a little bit before we can connect it back to the other two things, because uh, outside of the confusion we get around why Jesus would be baptized at all, this, this area here is, I think, where it's another place we often become confused about what's going on with Jesus. So pause with me for a second. A question that often comes up here, or really more likely an assumption that gets made when we're reading this, is that what we're seeing here is a description of Jesus receiving the Holy Spirit. That's what's often thought when people read this. Jesus is receiving the Holy Spirit. So that is, before Jesus' baptism, Jesus is just a regular dude walking around, and then here he comes and gets baptized, and now the Holy Spirit zaps him, right? Like he gets bitten by a radioactive spider, he, he collects all the infinity stones or whatever, and now Jesus becomes divine. Now he becomes the king so that he can now complete his mission and fulfill all righteousness. That, that's, that's something people often think of when, when they read this part of the passage. Now, I get it, this is confusing, and no, I don't pretend for a second to be able to understand all the fullness of how it is that Jesus can be both fully God and fully man at the same time, how that works and what that looked like. I, I don't, and yet, if we believe what the Bible also teaches us in places like John chapter 1, 
Colossians chapter 1, that, that, that teach that Jesus is the eternally existing Son of God, that He is the second person of the Trinity, the one through whom and for whom all things are made and hold together, then well, it's, it's not actually possible that Jesus is receiving the Holy Spirit in this moment or that He is in any way becoming divine after His baptism. Because Matthew, if you think about it, Matthew has been highlighting the divine nature of Jesus, literally that He is Emmanuel, He is God with us right from the beginning of His gospel. So to now kind of double back and say, well, no, no, actually this is where he becomes divine here is to discredit everything he's been saying for the last two and a half chapters. And so as most commentators agree, the descent of the Spirit on Jesus after his baptism was not a sign of the Spirit's filling of Jesus, but a sign of the Spirit's anointing of Jesus. As R.C. Sproul notes of this key difference in understanding. He says this, The significance of a dove descending and abiding was not that Jesus was being filled with the Spirit for the first time, but that he was being marked as the bearer of the Spirit who would then baptize with the Spirit. The very thing, if you remember, that John the Baptist said the greater one coming after him would do. And beyond any of that, if this is indeed Jesus' coronation, which I believe that's, that's what we're witnessing here, then as we've already established, beyond that, coronation is not the thing that makes someone a king or a queen, but only the ceremony that publicly validates, verifies, and establishes it. So the Spirit descends on Jesus, and the last thing we see happening there after Jesus' baptism, God the Father speaking from heaven, this is my beloved Son, whom I am, with whom I am well pleased, which on a surface level alone is, is divine confirmation that Jesus is indeed the beloved Son of God. He's the King. He's being spoken from heaven itself. He says, this is the guy here. This is him. But what most commentators also point out is that what the Father speaks from heaven over Jesus is actually a combination of two specific Old Testament texts. Uh, what we have from Psalm 2, verse 7, in particular, and also Isaiah 42, verse 1. Let's think about those quickly. In Psalm 2, which at this point would have been understood as a messianic psalm uh, pointing to a, a, a promised Messiah and rescuer, you have David writing about God's anointed, who he later refers to as the king, and then he talks about him being my son. God said, you are my son. And then Isaiah 42 a passage speaking about God's chosen servant, the Messiah, we read this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Okay, so taking all these pieces now, putting them all together, as Jesus submits himself to this baptism of repentance as our substitute, he then receives God's divine validation, establishing him, as the king who has come to bring God's kingdom to earth. As D.A. Carson notes, quote, the Spirit's descent in verse 16 needs to be understood in light of verse 17. This outpouring of the Spirit does not change Jesus' status, he was the son before this, or assign him new rights. Rather, it identifies him as the promised servant and son and marks the beginning of his public ministry. First, Craig Blomberg puts it, as in the royal enthronement context of Psalm 2, what appears here is a formal installment and commissioning, or we could say a formal coronation. 
he goes on, now one understands better why Jesus' baptism was fitting or appropriate as he begins his ministry here. And so, as with the coronation of a British royal, what we see in the baptism of Jesus is Jesus' willing submission to the Father's will. That's, that's kind of like taking the oath, as you see in a coronation ceremony. And then his anointing and public divine validation as God's promised king. All of these things together means what we're seeing is the, the validation and verification and establishment that Jesus truly is the promised king. He is God's promised anointed one, this Messiah, the Christ, Jesus is our King. And yet that revelation of Jesus as King also brings about at least two responses for people today, just as it did in Jesus' day. Uh, For some, this revelation, Jesus as King, brings immense comfort and hope and, and, and help particularly in times when life feels chaotic and, and, and all over the, out of control and fearful, to know that Jesus is our King, sovereignly ruling over all the events of the world, and who also, in, in coming and fulfilling His earthly ministry, has completed, filled up all righteousness for us on our behalf. It's incredibly comforting and, and hopeful to think of Jesus our King. He's ruling. He's in control. He's got this. And yet for others... The reality is this same revelation of Jesus as king brings immense fear, suspicion, and even anger. I mean, we we saw a prime example of this just a few weeks back in the response of King Herod at the revelation of Jesus as the newborn king. But come on, think about it. As as we seek to to cling to the illusion of of control and power and self-governance in our own lives still today, the results are exactly the same. Because we don't want to submit to the rule and authority of anyone else. We want to be the rulers and authorities of our own little kingdoms. We want to be the the master of our fate. We want to be the captain of our soul. And so rather than bring comfort and hope, the revelation of Jesus as king is seen and experienced really as, as a threat. When you think about those two responses of Jesus as king, which one is it for you? Which one of those do you experience when you think about that Jesus is our king? Well, I won't speak for you, but I know in my own life, I know what's true is that I actually experience both of those responses pretty much on a daily basis, actually. Because on the one hand, I'm incredibly grateful and, and, and I experience hope and, and life and help in those moments when I'm fearful, when I'm feeling panicked and, and I'm struggling to know that Jesus is still on his throne. He's ruling sovereignly over all the events of the world. I mean, we've seen some incredible events in the world in these past few weeks, haven't we? Even in this past 2020 year, like we've just seen so much happening. To know that Jesus is king, it brings so much hope and comfort to my life. He's in control of the world. He's in control of me. He's got me. And yet, in moments of temptation, in moments really, I would say, of provocation, when Jesus begins pressing in on areas of my life that I have not yet submitted to him, and he begins pushing into areas that I don't want to give him access to, I find that very same truth that Jesus is the king to be threatening, to be hostile, and fearful. 
Yeah? Anybody else experience that, those same things at the same time? I can't see your faces if you're nodding, but Christabel's at least nodding, and my guess is many of us would be like, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I experienced that too. And I'll tell you what, for me, the, the only solution, the only help to this seemingly never-ending tug of war going on in my heart daily is to just more and more, in, in my saner, more rational moments, when I'm experiencing the rule of King Jesus in my life positively, like as a, as a, as a good thing, I'm experiencing that rightly, one of the only solutions I've found to continue to grow in this is to come before my king and in prayer, pray the same prayer of King David in Psalm 139 when he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me, and then lead me in the way everlasting. Just to, to pray that before my king. And then whatever grievous, non-submissive way that the Spirit reveals to me, then, okay, ask for his strength to lay that down and to give him authority to rule there as well. It's one of the only ways I've found to help in these times of need. I wonder about you. What, what do you think the Spirit would reveal to you if you were to pray that same prayer today? Reveal to me the places in my life where I'm not submitting to you, where you are not, I'm not allowing you to rule in my life. What, what would this Spirit reveal to you today? Here's what I know. If Jesus is truly the king, well, then he deserves to reign in every area of our hearts and of our lives. And if we're choosing when and where Jesus gets to be the authority in our lives, where he gets to rule as king, well, then who's actually the one ruling in that scenario? Jesus is our king. He, he needs to be the one who rules in all places. And more and more, by his grace, we need to submit our lives to that rule and reign. When a sinless Jesus walked out to John in the Jordan River asking for a baptism of repentance, we saw John asking Jesus, as, as Keller so masterfully re revised his objection, Jesus, what are you doing in my place? What, what, what are you doing down there submitting in the waters of baptism, of God's judgment and repentance. Jesus, why am I in your place and you're in mine? And I don't, know, I don't know where you're at today in your relationship with that same Jesus. But a powerful thing to consider is that when we see Jesus just three years or so from that day hanging on a Roman cross for the sins of the world, including yours. Every single one of us must ask Jesus that very same question ourselves. Jesus, what are you doing in my place? Why are you up there submitting to God's judgment and wrath for my sin? Why am I in your place, free, and you're in mine, condemned? The answer to that question is, I believe, what Isaiah tells us later in Isaiah 53 when he says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. For in the cross of Jesus we see the completion. We see the very last filling up of righteousness that Jesus first began all the way back in that day in the Jordan River with John. Because Jesus was God's chosen servant, he was willing to fulfill all righteousness for you. Because Jesus was God's anointed Messiah King, he was able to fulfill all righteousness for you. See Jesus again today in his humility, in his sacrifice, submitting to a baptism he did not need all the way through to suffering a crucifixion he did not deserve for you, all for you. Meditate deeply, let let it touch you. Meditate on the immense cost he was willing to pay to accomplish for you what we in our frail human weakness never could. And as you do that, I pray it inspires you today. It inspires you to both receive Jesus as your substitute, if you've never done that before. Just receive Jesus' work on your behalf. And I pray it also inspires you today, more and more, to submit to him, to to give him the rule in your life, more and more, as your king. Amen. Amen.